Hello, church family. Please follow along with me, starting in Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Well, good evening, everybody. Again, it's really good to be with you. I'll say hello to those who are with us online in the worship guide. And I just want to say it brings me great joy, and I am ecstatic to be able to dive into this Gospel of Matthew with you over the next year. As we, last year in 2020, we uh, basically started in Genesis and went all the way to Revelation. We covered a lot of ground. This year, we're going to dig deeply into one book, the Gospel of Matthew, and I'm thrilled to be able to do that with you uh, this year. Uh, just kind of start with this. When I think about diving into a Gospel and diving into particularly the Gospel of Matthew, I, I think back when I was in seminary many, many moons ago, back in the age of the typewriter, even before the internet, we had to do all of our research by using books from a library. Can you imagine what that looked like? But when I was back in seminary, there was a fellow who invested a great deal of time into my life. His name was Clyde Cranford. And his goal really was to take young seminarians and uh, as we were learning and growing in so much knowledge, but to do everything he could humanly to make sure we kept our eyes on Jesus. And there was a couple things that I remember from Clyde. One was that if you took Clyde's Bible and you open it up to the cover, 
he just had one word on the cover of his Bible, and it wasn't his name. It was just the word tremble. Tremble, taken from the prophet Isaiah. The other thing I'll never forget about Clyde was he said this to me over and over again. He said, as you continue to pursue Jesus, as you spend time with him daily in his word, just remember this, don't ever stray too far from the Gospels. And that's just reverberated in my ears now for almost 25 years, remembering as we seek the Lord daily in his word, we don't ever want to stray too far from the Gospels. It's there in the Gospels that we most clearly see and we savor the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's my prayer. That's my prayer for you. That's my prayer for us as we walk through this Gospel. We continue on. We'll be in chapter 3, as you know, tonight. That we will deeply see clearly and savor the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to give our attention to the Gospel of Matthew over the next 11 months. And here's the way you can be involved in this. And I ask you to be involved these ways. One is we want to read through the Gospel of Matthew together. We've prepared a reading plan. If you haven't seen this, it's very well done. It walks you through. This is our edition that will take us up through May. And then we'll have a second edition that will kick off in June. This is available online. There's an adult version and then there's a kids version, parents, that you can pick up for your kids as well. Again, all this is online. We have printed copies as well. Uh, Secondly, in our weekend gatherings, we're going to be preaching through Matthew. We'll walk through God's Word. But the reading plan is so designed that... What we're teaching through on the weekend, you will have already read through in the week so that you're able to come in here and you've already wrestled with that text and wrestled with what God has to say and then we'll continue to teach on it here. And then uh, we have groups. We're going to have some study groups that are going to allow you to go deeper into Matthew and then you'll be able to go back to your life group and talk about what God is teaching you through the Gospel of Matthew over the next year. So really excited to dive into the Gospel of Matthew together. Now, chapter 3. We're going to dive in tonight. I have a pretty audacious goal. We'll try to cover the whole chapter. All right, so you've got to hang on. There's a lot here. We're going to do our best. We've already covered, you remember, chapters 1 and 2. We did that as part of Advent, talking about the birth, the conception of the Lord Jesus. We've already covered chapter 1 and 2. Now, chapter 3, we're going to jump into the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus. Now, we've done a little bit of this, but as a teacher, I want to do just a little bit more. I want to set the spiritual furniture, if you will, as we're diving into the Gospel of Matthew. Anytime you determine that you're going to study a particular book of the Bible, there's always some really important questions you need to ask and you need to wrestle with. And let's let's wrestle with a few of those. Uh, Number one, what do we know about the author of this book? Well, it's interesting that none of the four Gospels that give us the picture of Jesus ever directly say who the author was. We know by much tradition, and the Bible seems to indicate as best we can gather, this Gospel was written by Matthew. But there's something I came across this week was very helpful. A commentator named Michael Green said this. He said, the coming of Jesus sparked an entirely new literary form called the Gospels. We have four of them. There was nothing like the Gospels prior to the four that we have now, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The four Gospels are not biography, although they contain it. They're not history, though they accurately reflect it. The Gospels proclaim the good news 
the good news of salvation which has long been looked for and burst upon the world through Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. The Gospels are utterly captivated by Him. This is huge. This was so important for me this week. The Gospels are utterly captivated by Him, and none of them mentions the name of its author directly. The point of the Gospels is Jesus. Now, we know, again, from much tradition that it is widely accepted that the author of this Gospel is none other than one of His disciples, Matthew. So what do we know about Matthew? It's going to help you as you read through this gospel to understand some things about this author, Matthew. Here's some things we know about him. Number one, he was a Jew. He was given the name Levi, so he's evidently of the tribe of Levi. We know that he was well-versed in Hebrew scriptures. Some even conjecture that Matthew may have been a scribe. He, he quotes the Old Testament more than any other gospel writer. And you can see he desires to connect the old with the new, that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that's been promised. Matthew seems to desire to do that. We know that his primary audience is Jews who were longing for their anticipated Messiah King. So sometimes that causes a little bit of challenge in what we're reading in Matthew because the primary audience is Jews. We're not Jews. So the, most of us, I think, are Gentiles, so we have to work a little harder sometimes to understand some of these things in Matthew. We're going to do that together. So we know Matthew was a Jew. Secondly, this is really important. Matthew was a tax collector by trade. The Bible declares him to be that. We know that from Matthew 10 and other places. Now, tax collectors in that day, if you know your Bible at all, were different than IRS agents today. Tax collectors in that day were hated by their own people. Tax collectors in that day, there were two things that were realities about tax collectors. Number one, they betrayed their own people. They were Jews who betrayed their own people, the Jews, by collecting exorbitant taxes for the Roman government. And then they would take a little off the top for themselves. Tax collectors were usually really rich dudes. Remember Zacchaeus? They were really rich because they had betrayed their own people. They were hated among the Jews. Second thing that I think is important for us to understand, if you're going to be a tax collector like Matthew in this day, it also meant that you had abandoned any hope of the Old Testament Messiah, the king was ever going to come. Now this is huge. Evidently, Matthew was a man who knew the Old Testament. Again, he quotes it more than any Old Testament, uh, uh, any gospel writer. But to be a tax collector in that day, you are basically saying, I have somehow become disillusioned with the promises that a king is going to come and make everything right. Therefore, I'm going to put all my eggs in the basket of Rome. Somewhere along the line, Matthew, who knew all the prophecies, knew all that the Bible said in the Old Testament, had become disillusioned and evidently lost hope that that promised king was ever going to arrive. Now that's massive when you understand why Matthew writes as he does. Here's the third thing we know about Matthew. We know he's a Jew. We know he's a tax collector. Number three, we know that Matthew was radically transformed by Jesus Christ. 
So here's Matthew, evidently, who was a Jewish scholar of the Old Testament, knew the prophecies and had become so disillusioned that a king was ever going to come, he threw everything in with the Romans. All that changed when Jesus walked on the scene. And we know that from Luke chapter 5, verse 27 and 28, it says this, After this, he, Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi, that's Matthew, sitting in his tax booth doing his job. He said to him, follow me. And by the way, that's evidently not the first time Matthew had encountered Jesus. But at this point, Jesus calls him to lay down everything and follow him. Listen to verse 28. And leaving everything, Matthew rose and followed him. Point is, here's Matthew who, as best I can gather, was a disillusioned Jew who had abandoned hope that a Messiah was ever going to come until he met the true king, King Jesus, and he abandoned everything to follow the true king. Now, here's why that matters to you in understanding the way Matthew writes. Matthew writes the gospel of Matthew primarily, this is his theme, to the Jews of his day and to the Jewish world to say, Hey, your promised king is here. You don't understand the gospel of Matthew, and then you understand Matthew over and over is one who has been so transformed by this king, he wants his Jewish brethren to understand he's here. So he writes 28 chapters of the Gospel of Matthew to say to the Jewish people, let me introduce you to your king. Let me introduce you to the promised one. Israel, wake up. The king is here. And that's the point and that's the theme of Matthew. And that's why even our big idea today and even the title of this series is Jesus is the promised king. Now, that explains why we've read what we've just read in the first two chapters. Now, we're not going to go back and review all of that. But over the last few weeks, Matthew has laid out over and over evidence. Hey, Jesus is the king. He's laid out his ancestry in chapter 1. You remember starting in Matthew and you started reading the genealogies and you go, what is this here for, the begats, and he had this son and all that son. Genealogies are huge to Jews. And Matthew is declaring, you can trace this person, Jesus, all the way back to King David. He's of the line of David. He has a kingly, he has a kingly ancestry. And that's not far enough. Trace him all the way back to Matthew. He has a kingly ancestry. Then Matthew describes his birth. He has a kingly birth. He was born of a virgin. He was born unlike any other human in the history of the world. Why does Matthew include that? To say, your king is here. goes on. He, he describes his conception. He describes his birth. He describes the kingly opposition that Jesus faces from Herod. Remember in the story of Herod. Jesus is born, the Magi come, they announce, hey, one has been born king of the Jews. Herod wanted to kill him. Why? Because Herod wasn't a Jew. And Herod says, I'm going to, Herod was sitting on the throne of Israel. He knew it was an illegitimate throne. He now heard and he believed. He recognized that was the king of the Jews. And out of fear for his own political position, said, I've got to take this guy out. Why does Matthew include that? To declare even kingly opposition to Christ as a baby declares your king is here. King is here. 
Matthew, more than any other gospel writer, writes to fulfill prophecy. He shows in chapter 1 and 2 over and over. You're going to hear this little phrase throughout Matthew. It's like Matthew utilizes a fulfillment formula, like Matthew 1.22 when he says, And this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Over and over, this happened to fulfill what was said by the prophet. This happened to fulfill what the Lord had said. Over and over, you see Jesus fulfilling direct predictions, like where he was born. That was a direct prediction. But you also, Jesus, fulfilling the fuller meaning of the whole Old Testament. In chapter 2, he refers to the Exodus coming out of Egypt. In other words, he's saying, you don't even understand the Exodus of your people apart from King Jesus. The King is here. A greater Moses is here. The ultimate fulfillment of all of this is here. And Matthew, I want you to hear and feel that heartbeat as you walk through the Gospel of Matthew. One who has been radically transformed by this king who has arrived wants his people to know your king is here. king is here. Next week, we'll look at chapter 4. He's going to present Jesus as the sinless king. But then tonight, chapter 3, we're going to look at the divine announcements of who Jesus is. He's announced by a divine forerunner, and he's announced by the Father himself to be the promised king. Do that. So let's jump in. Chapter 3, verse 1. You say, man, that's all introduction. It's hopefully to help you as we read through this great gospel together and study over it for the next year, that we are transformed by this promised king. Matthew chapter 1, look with me, chapter 3, verse 1, the preparation for the king. Verse 1 says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. It begins in those days. What days? Well, it's been about 25 or 30 years since the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus. We don't know a lot about the early years of Jesus' life, Jesus' ministry. Here John says, now in those days, somewhere around 30 years later, John the Baptist comes preaching in the wilderness of Judea. What was he preaching? Verse 2, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. The content of John's message is incredible. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 3, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now stop right there. What's going on here? Well, what's going on here is in those days, no king would ever arrive unannounced. When someone of importance was going to arrive, there would always be a forerunner that would go before that individual to prepare the people, to announce that he's coming, and literally to make the roads clear. In those days, the roads were a mess. They were not paved. They were rock, stone. They would literally clear any obstacles. Now listen to this. The forerunner's job was to clear any obstacles that might keep the people from rightly receiving the king. John shows up on the scene to remove any obstacles from the people of Israel that their king is here. John precedes, John the cousin of Jesus, born of Elizabeth, we read about that, it's in Luke, it's other places. 
He is the divine forerunner who comes before Jesus to prepare the way. Matthew declares from Isaiah in verse 3, all this promised fulfillment, because if you were a Jew in that day, you knew there was going to be a forerunner coming before the Messiah. John says, this is the promised forerunner, therefore, this is the promised Messiah. Make way, the ready, ready for the Lord. John had a message. We see that in verse 2, and this message is critical. Now, John's message had two parts. Now, look really carefully at verse 2. We're going to camp out here for a minute. He comes to this nation of Israel, the people of Israel, and his message has two parts. First part, or the second part of his message is this. Israel, the kingdom is here. The kingdom is here, meaning the king has stepped out of the realm of the heavenlies. Don't think of heaven as some far off place. The king has stepped out of the realm of the heavenlies. The king is here and now there is the embodiment of the kingdom. The king is here and therefore there's a representation of the kingdom. Remember, the longing of every Jew was that day that the king would come and inaugurate the kingdom. A totally different type of life. Kingdom life. We'll talk more about that in the book of Matthew. John the Baptist says, hey, the kingdom is at hand. It's here. It's coming. It's in your presence. The second part of his message is a little more difficult. To these Jews of that day, he says, your promised king is here second part of the message you're not ready to meet him he says repent he says to these Israelites of the day who in their mindset were entitled they had a place in the kingdom because they were Jews we'll read about that in a minute they had a mindset that because they kept the law and they kept all the ordinances and they kept the Passover and they did all the religion, they had earned a place in the kingdom. So when they hear, the kingdom is here, yes, but you're not ready. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's just be real gut level honest. That was an extremely offensive message to the prideful Jews who thought they had a sure path into the kingdom because of their accomplishments, because of their Jewishness, because of their own righteousness. And John is declaring the kingdom is here and you're not ready to meet him. In fact, you don't even realize you need a savior. He says, the call to your life is one of repentance. Now listen, if you're a Jew in that day, you heard the word repentance, you'd heard the word repentance a lot. And by the way, you were sure everyone else needed to repent. You were sure those Gentiles outside the land of Israel and outside the kingdom needed to repent. But you're telling us we need to repent? John says, you are not right in your soul, and you are not ready to meet your king. Repentance here is an incredible words, incredible truth. We, we'll spend just a few minutes talking about the idea of repentance. The message of John to these spiritual, smug, prideful, trusting their own accomplishments, Jews, was this. Repentance means literally a, a change of mind. 
resulting in a change of direction. It's a change of attitude. It's a metanoia. It means it's a transformation. It's a going this way, I'm going that way. It is, I want you to hear it this way. It is a God-produced posture of our heart toward God. I don't want you to hear repentance as something we are ever capable to work up. Because, by the way, our flesh will never choose repentance. Our flesh will always choose rebellion and resistance. Repentance is a change of mind and a posture before God that you are God and I am not. I am sinful and you are holy. And I have broken and rebelled and sinned against you. It is a God-wrought, grace-empowered posture of the heart. And somehow, someway, God does that in the lives of people through the proclamation of the gospel and the preaching of His Word of the Spirit of God does that. And He's calling these Israelites to repent. Repentance, just talk about it a little bit more, is contrition. It's a posture. It involves three things, and we're going to see these pressed out here. It involves first an awareness. There's an awareness, God, I'm not right. You're infinitely more holy than I am. I'm broken. I'm sinful. There's an awareness that I'm not right. Secondly, there's a willingness to change. There's a willingness to pursue whatever is necessary to get right, to be right. I I need a Savior. I need righteousness. I don't have it. And then thirdly, genuine God-wrought repentance will bear fruit. Jesus says here, or John says to these Pharisees and these religious leaders, go bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Genuine repentance instead of just, sorry I got caught or worried about consequences. Genuine God-wrought repentance in a heart and soul will bear fruit. That's the the plea from John to these Israelites. Your, Your king is here. But you're not ready to meet him. There's obstacles in your soul. There's distractions in your heart. There's pride. There's sin. There's self-righteousness. Your king will pass you by. He says, unless you repent. It's a tough message. Not received well by all. Received well by some here. By others, they crucified him, by the way. Or crucified Jesus, who preached the same message. Verse 5, what was the response? Then all then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. It's significant to read that because Matthew makes very clear that they were going out to John. Why didn't John go preach in the city of Jerusalem? Why didn't the voice of the prophet John the Baptist go preach in Jerusalem? Because Jerusalem represented all of the self-righteous system that they were trusting in. So they had to go out from Jerusalem. John's preaching in the wilderness. He's calling them to repentance. He's calling them to turn from what they were trusting in. Verse 6, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now this is an immense picture of repentance. Now this is not the religious leaders. They're going to show up later. John's going to deal with them. This is many of the crowds, many of the Jews who recognized we're not ready to meet our Messiah. 
They come out, he says they were confessing their sin. Verse 6, that's an awareness of needed change. That's calling sin what sin is instead of making excuses. They were confessing that they were not right. They were going out. That's a willingness to change. They were leaving whatever they were trusting in and going to embrace their king. And then thirdly, they were being baptized. Being baptized in the Jordan River by John. Now what's this all about? Well, we could talk a ton about this. We could spend a whole Sunday or a weekend on baptism. But the point is here, during this time, baptism by immersion in water was primarily practiced only by Gentiles. And it was the right, if you will, for a Gentile to say, I'm outside of the kingdom of God. And baptism is a public testimony of my need to enter into the kingdom. Baptism didn't save. It doesn't save now. It's a symbol of repentance. So for a Jew to take on baptism in this day was for a Jew to say, I'm no different from the Gentiles. I'm outside of the kingdom of God. I need a Savior. It was a massive public testimony of repentance and trusting in the Savior who was coming. It's a picture. Baptism today is a picture. Baptism doesn't save. It's a picture that we're turning from our old way and we're embracing King Jesus. It models baptism, death to self, raised to walk in the newness of life. It is the public testimony of faith and repentance in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were doing that here. So I can just imagine, imagine being there. And this scene down by the River Jordan, you've got all these Jews coming out. There's this baptism happening, and many of these Jews are saying, look, we, we know we're Jews, but we know we're outside the kingdom. We're not ready. And they're being baptized, and there's this picture, and, and the Bible even tells us there were some who were coming. We know some of Jesus' early disciples were part of this group. John 1.35 says, Andrew, one of Jesus' disciples, was first a disciple of John. He came out for baptism. We also know some who came out for baptism were tax collectors. Luke chapter 3 verse 12 says that coming out for some were tax collectors. Maybe, just maybe, one of those tax collectors was Matthew who heard the preaching of John the Baptist, realized that he was not ready, realized that maybe this Jesus is the promised Messiah. He came out for baptism and then later Jesus passed by his tax booth and said, now you're ready, come follow me. Maybe. The message of John was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Some responded in faith and repentance, but others did not. Look at verse 7. But when he saw many, this is John, but when John the Baptist saw that many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees were coming to his baptism, he said to them, now, just really quick, you're going to hear the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all these different groups, all these different religious sects that were a part, S-E-C-T-S, that were prominent in that day. You're going to hear, hear about it all through the Gospel of Matthew. Pharisees were those who were the orthodox. They were the conservatives. They were looked at as, man, they are, the word Pharisee means one set apart. They were just so godly, the people thought. Sadducees were the more liberals. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. These two were warring parties, but they came together here, and they come out to be a part of this because they didn't want to miss out. 
John sees through their heart and he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? <laughs> say that for John. I mean, you have to imagine, if you're there and you're a Jew, you're looking at these guys as they're really, I mean, they're, they're the religious examples of the day, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they come out and John says, hey, what are you doing here? You family of snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Why did he say it that way? He said it because you're no different from a snake that feels the heat and you're scurrying away from judgment. You're not here because you're ready to receive your Messiah. You're not here to, out of repentance and brokenness. You're just worried about the consequence. And that day in, in the land of Israel, there was a, a snake that literally looked like a stick. And you would walk right across them and the only way you knew it was a snake is if you would light a fire and that snake would start scurrying away from the fire. That's the reference John is using here. You're just running from wrath. You're not repenting. You're not ready to receive your Savior. You don't even realize you need this King who is coming. He says that to these scribes and Pharisees. He says, verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Where's your fruit? Genuine repentance will always demonstrate itself in a changed life, in the fruit of a changed life. He says to them, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to, from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. What does that mean? He reveals the obstacle that's in their heart. He says, the obstacle that's in your heart is this. You have a sense of entitlement that you're part of the kingdom because Abraham is your father in the flesh. You're a Jew. And your smugness, you're trusting in your ethnicity, your lineage from Abraham, that you're part of the kingdom. And John says, don't for one second think that anyone is entitled or any human can earn their place in the kingdom. It is given by the grace of God. That's his point. God wants to. He can raise up from these stones children of Abraham. That's probably a reference to the Gentiles, by the way. I don't know. He says to these Jews, you have this obstacle. You're trusting in something other than the grace of God that will bring you into the kingdom of God. And by the way, this was the most religious culture maybe in history. For us who live in the Bible Belt of the South, it is so easy for us to trust our place in the kingdom and we're actually trusting in something other than Jesus alone. Because don't you for one second think you're entitled to your place in the kingdom because of your Jewishness? He says it doesn't work that way. Same conversation Jesus has with Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee in John 3. Remember that? Nicodemus, a Pharisee, comes to Jesus at night and says, Hey, about the kingdom, how to get the kingdom, what's the kingdom look like, all that. And Jesus said, Listen, John 3, 3, he says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you're born again, Nicodemus, you can't even see the kingdom. The born again there is a reference to you're born a Jew. That doesn't get you in the kingdom. You have to be born again spiritually as a child of God. Same argument throughout. And that's one of the reasons they crucified Jesus. You brood of vipers, you whitewashed tombs, you're trusting in something other than the grace of God to save you. What's the result of that? And this is where John is very frank and he's very clear. Verse 10, even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. 
It's agricultural reference. If you, you have a certain tree and you expect it to bear a certain kind of fruit, if that tree doesn't bear fruit, oh, you've got to chop that tree down to make room for those that do bear fruit. Or if it's bearing a different kind of fruit than it should be bearing, you take the axe to it. He says there's no fruit in your life. There's no evidence of transformation. There's no repentance. There's no faith in the grace of God and His coming Messiah. Therefore, you're like that tree who's going to be chopped down because you bear no fruit. Every tree, therefore, verse 10, that does not bear good fruit is thrown down, cut in the, or is cut down, thrown into the fire. This is verse 11, and there's a lot, a lot here. We're not going to be able to talk about all this. We'll talk about this later. Verse 11, John says, I baptize you with water for repentance. Again, this baptism is indicating your repentance. But he says, one is coming who's mightier than I. Talking about Jesus, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn up with unquenchable fire. This is very direct language to the people of Israel that your Messiah is here. And all that's going to result in you without repentance and faith is a promised judgment. He uses an agricultural example of this winnowing fork. That that's the way they would sift the, the grain. They would separate the wheat from the chaff. And they would throw it up in the air. And you would know this hard particle, it would fall down. But the wheat would fly away. It was a picture of judgment. And John's saying, look, I, I can discern your heart. But there's one who's coming that can discern exactly where you are. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And it's a terrible expectation of judgment here. You're not just missing out on the good life of the kingdom by failing to recognize your need for your Savior and responding in faith and repentance. You're facing an eternal place called hell and separation from God. Unbelievable to the Jews to hear this. So I'm going to give you a few big ideas and we're going to try to wrap it up. Coming off verse 13, here's your big idea number one. The king is received by repentance and faith. John says the message is the king is here. Your king is received rightly by repentance and faith. And I want you to hear something tonight. That This is an application directly to us. Repentance, when we hear that, repentance, yes, is for those who don't know Christ. Repentance is that posture of the heart of I need, I'm broken, I'm coming. That's why faith can't happen apart from repentance. That They're inseparable works of grace. Repentance is the heart preparation. Faith is the embracing of what you realize you need. They go together. That's how someone comes to Christ. It's through faith and repentance. Jesus preached the same message. You're going to hear that later. Paul in Acts 20 said the same thing. Repent and believe. The person of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's an awareness, there's a willingness to turn, and there's a running to Jesus in faith and repentance. Listen, as a parent, I'll just give you a quick example. I'm not going to share this in every service for obvious reasons, but I'll share it with you. This is why we have two little girls. They're 11 and 10, and both of them can tell you about Jesus. They can share parts of the gospel, but we don't believe they're ready to meet their king because there's no indication of repentance in their life whatsoever. There's no brokenness over sin. There's no recognition that they've sinned against God. They'll see a baptism here like many of us. And they'll watch that. And they'll, Can I be baptized? That looks fun. Be up in the water. And no repentance. In other words, the God-wrought work of repentance precedes faith. Because without repentance, you don't even realize you need a Savior. 
So repentance is, yes, for those who don't know Christ. But I want you to hear this tonight as well. Repentance and faith is also for the saved. In other words, for us, this is how we continue to grow in Christ. Repentance is an ongoing posture of our heart before God. When you hear repentance, I don't want you to check out and you go, well, you know, I've done that. I'm a Christian. I'm born again. I don't have to worry about it. Repentance for the child of God is an ongoing posture of our deep dependence on Jesus. It is reflected by a passionate pursuit to grow and become more Christ-like instead of indifference. It is reflected by a teachable spirit receiving correction instead of being easily offended. It is calling sin in your life what it is instead of making excuses. It is a deep sense of gratitude that God has given me something that I could never earn, never deserve. It is by the grace of God and this posture of repentance is reflected in a deep sense of gratitude in our lives. Repentance is for the lost, but repentance is also for those who are born again in Christ. John does his job. John preaches the message. He says, your king is here. He calls to repentance and faith. And then we'll wrap it up in three or four of the, really some of the greatest verses anywhere in the book of Matthew. I wish we had more time, but let me just show you the, the arrival of the king, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. You say, Pastor Mike, I'll be real honest. I read that this week. I've heard that all my life, that Jesus comes to be baptized by John. What in the world is going on? So I have a real problem that Jesus comes to be baptized because baptism was for repentance, right? What's Jesus repenting of? Well, if it makes you feel any better, John had a real problem with it too. Look at verse 14. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And you, Jesus, are coming to me? John had a real problem with it, too. Why in the world is Jesus coming for baptism? This is huge, and I want you to listen to this really carefully. We know that Jesus was not coming for baptism because he had sinned. We know that Jesus is not coming because he needed to repent of anything. We're confident that this is not merely an example for us to follow. It's much, much more than that. Jesus helps us himself. Verse 15, and by the way, these are the first words uttered by Jesus as an adult anywhere in Scripture. It says this, Let it be so, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John says, okay, he consents. Jesus says to John, John, you don't quite even understand all that's going on here. In doing this, I'm fulfilling all righteousness. There's a divine reason for me to take on this baptism, this identification with sinners. And that seems to be exactly why Jesus here, the first act we see him doing, is just an act of incredible humility that ought to just awaken our hearts to see and Savior our King. He, in his first act as the king, John, the king's here. What's the first thing he does? I'm coming to be baptized. Why? Because I need salvation. I need repentance. No, because I am publicly identifying with the sinners that I have come to save. 
incredible picture of the humility of your king and his mission is to come and save sinners. Baptism is an identification with, and that's your big idea number two. Here we go. The righteous king identifies with sinners so that sinners may be made righteous. It's a picture of his ministry. It's a picture of his mission. It's a picture of his life. I'm coming as the king, but I'm identifying with sinful men and women. It's a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 12, when it says, He poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. It's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. It's a picture of his death, his burial, of his resurrection. It's a picture of his identification with us sinful men and women of why he came to the earth to glorify the Father by redeeming you and me, sinful men and women. Final few verses, the coronation of the king. The team can come on up and just begin to play. We're not finished, but I just want to read these last few verses and then we're going to move into a time of response. Verse 16. Jesus comes up out of the water, verse 16, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, this is an incredible picture of what happened. The heavens were open to him. By the way, I want you to know that's not just the clouds parting. This is the realm of heaven speaking into this situation. The very realm of where God exists, declaring and speaking a voice into this situation. He says, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. This is a fulfillment of places like Psalm 2. This is a fulfillment of places like Isaiah when he says the Messiah will be filled and empowered and he will carry out his mission by the Spirit of God. And Matthew again is saying, your king is here. Your king is here. The Spirit of God anoints and empowers him for the ministry that he would carry out and fulfill. And then finally, verse 17, and we'll finish with this. <laughs> Behold, a voice from heaven. God the Father is going to speak. And God the Father is going to declare something to be true about this king. This is my beloved son. He's God. He, he and I have, have existed forever in a perfect, intimate love relationship between the Father and the Son. This is the Son of my love. This is my beloved Son. And I am well pleased with Him. Meaning and declaring the perfect righteousness of the Son of God. His worthiness to carry out this ministry. In that day it was a practice of the Father to prepare the firstborn Son to be sent out. To declare He is now ready. He is now worthy to take this role, this place as heir and to be launched out. The Father is declaring of the Son, I am well pleased in Him. And here's your final big idea is this. The King authorized by heaven he's empowered by the spirit he's loved by the father and Matthew wants to declare to you and to me and all who ever read this gospel Jesus is the promised
You just bow your head for a minute and let's enter into a time of response and we'll sing a song of response in just a moment. But your response tonight may be one of repentance. You, you may be in the first time in your life realize that you have never met the King because your heart's never been prepared to meet the King. You've never even realized you need a Savior. Maybe tonight for the first time you will cry out in faith and repentance, Lord, I need you. Save me. Maybe tonight as a believer you realize there are obstacles in my life that have hindered my fellowship and my love relationship with my Father. Maybe you need to repent of some of those obstacles that have distracted you from your love relationship with your King. For the rest of us, just like John the Baptist, we have a mission. The King is coming again. And He has a divine forerunner and it's called the church. We are to declare, repent, the King is coming, your Savior is here. Father, I thank you for this truth, I thank you for the Gospel of Matthew, I pray that we would be transformed, and I pray, O oh God, that we would see and savor the Lord Jesus Christ. We love you and we praise you, in Jesus' name, amen.